0: Welcome back to another episode of Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. I'm your host, Darren Fatman McDuffie, and thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode, and thank you if you are listening to all of my episodes. And if you're not, please start to listen to all of the episodes. And you can listen to them by going to Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, or Stitcher, and you have access to every episode that I've ever done. And there's some pretty good shows in there. I won't brag on it but there are some good shows in there that you may want to listen to especially if you are in the health, wellness and consciousness. Tonight we have another great show I'm interviewing actually Ethan DeMitchell, but before I get to Ethan's bio, just wanted to let you know that I will be moving domains. Those of you who have been to my website I'mthefatman.com, the know that I haven't really written anything on that particular site for a while and the reason being is that I'm going to be updating my domain and the new website will be a lot more functional you will have access to the podcast I'm also going to have a store where I'm going to be endorsing some products because I know that for a lot of you you want to kind of know what I use and uh, I'm really into having high quality products so you'll have access to those products On the new website, and there's a lot more things that I'm going to be doing as well. So, again, I'll be moving that domain and not really going to say what the domain is yet, but know that it will be moving. So, when it does, I'll let you know and please check me out. So, today's guest is uh, Mr. Ethan DeMitchell, and let me read his bio. Mr. Ethan DeMitchell is an expert in the field of testing and treatment of adverse food reactions. He is co author of the Certified Leap Therapist Training Course and has spent the last 23 years. Teaching healthcare practitioners effective methods of identifying foods and chemicals that provoke inflammation and eating plans that help make it easier for patients to manage diet-induced inflammation and symptoms. His contributions have directly helped improve the health and lives of tens of thousands of food-sensitivity patients across the country. Ethan is the Vice President of client Rich Services for Oxford Biomedical Technologies, a leading food sensitivity laboratory, and is here with us today to explain the different ways in food can cause inflammation and inflammatory reactions through things that we eat. Without further ado, Mr. Ethan DeMitchell, and please enjoy the show. Ethan DeMitchell, welcome to Perfectly Healthy and Tone Radio. How are you? I'm doing great, Darren. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for being on. You and I interviewed maybe about two years ago at the time when I had uh, I was doing the Wellness Warrior radio show with Diane uh, Kaiser, and that show is no longer available, but um, I got a chance to meet you there and uh, spent some time myself in the food sensitivity testing industry and wanted to get you back on because I believe that this is something that people need to know about because a lot of people out there may be suffering from foods that they're eating that they may think are healthy that are not really healthy uh, for them. But before we get in and start talking a little bit more about the testing, just give us your background on how you ended up uh, getting into this industry and and what's been going on. Sure. Uh, Well, I've been in this industry since
1: I got out of college. I graduated from the University of Iowa back in 1991. And my first job out of college was working for Alcat, actually. And I worked there for three years, and then I, I moved over to the current company that I'm with, which is Oxford Biomedical Technologies. And I've been here for a little more than 20 years. Um, the The food ind- uh, food sensitivity testing industry and just the uh, general awareness of food sensitivities has grown tremendously as it needed to in the past 20 years. And it's a critical part of so many people's unresolved health problems. Um, so there's a great need for it, and uh, it's actually a very rewarding thing to be able to deliver that to people that need it.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you there. And, and still, there's a lot of people out there who may not know about it, and today we'll talk a little bit more about it, get into the science of it, and um, see if those people who are out there listening would want to go and get testing. Um, there's something that since I was able to do my own testing and recommend testing to people that um, I tell people all the time, and I say that there are no healthy foods, and people look at me like I'm crazy, but uh-huh. <laughs> um, talk about your philosophy on, on that, and uh, if you even if you agree with me or disagree with me, but talk about that uh, in general.
1: Yeah, well in general it's correct and and what it means is that uh a person can develop a reaction to virtually any food. So in absolute terms there is no always 100% of the time food that'll never harm anybody. So in that and that's the perspective I believe that you were coming from mm-hmm. is that it's uh you know a person can develop a sensitivity um to things which are anti-inflammatory like salmon or blueberry or garlic or uh, curcumin. Curcumin is the very powerful anti-inflammatory that has tremendous benefits as an anti-cancer therapy. There's a lot of research that's been done on it, but even turmeric shows that for not everybody is it an anti-inflammatory. In fact, in some people it's an inflammatory. It's a small percentage of that population, but it is that way nonetheless. So the whole point is if you've got an unresolved illness which has inflammation as a a basis for that illness, such as chronic digestive problems often have an inflammatory basis. Chronic pain conditions like arthritis often have an inflammatory basis for their development and existence headaches, chronic headaches, migraines, allergies, that you'd be very pressed to find a disease condition that in some way doesn't involve the inflammatory processes. And chronic inflammatory conditions such as irritable bowel syndrome, migraine headaches, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, attention deficit disorder, all kinds of conditions have shown to have elevation of what are called inflammatory cytokines or leukotrienes these are chemical substances which are often related or released from white blood cells that give rise to various types of negative physiologic consequences like various symptoms so the past 20 years has seen a great increase in many chronic illnesses despite you know, Im- improvements in diagnostic technologies, despite uh, improvements in medications, um, the problem is often related to the source that's causing that in chronic inflammatory response. That may be either bacterially, virally related, some type of a bug that the patient comes into uh, contact with, or very commonly, food. So that's essentially what a food sensitivity is, is an inflammatory reaction to a particular food or many foods, as is often the case, that is different than an allergic reaction or a celiac reaction. There's essentially three types of diet-induced or food-induced inflammatory reactions. Food allergy, pretty much everybody knows about it. And even in conventional medicine, it's a very well-understood type of reaction. Then you have celiac disease, which is completely different than allergy, completely different than sensitivities. It's actually an autoimmune reaction. So autoimmune reaction means the patient who has celiac disease has a genetic predisposition to having that disease. When that genetic uh, situation is expressing itself and the person eats gluten mm-hmm. in the form of either bread or foods that contain gluten, then what happens is the body's immune system begins to attack itself. It's not actually an attack against the food. It's attack because of the genetic expression and the presence of gluten and that then results in a whole bunch of inflammatory problems and symptoms and tissue damage that the patient has to suffer through if it's not diagnosed and properly treated. So food sensitivities are another category of food-induced inflammation, which are very much more complicated than the other two. Why they're more complicated is because food allergy is one particular type of pathway. It's very straightforward person produces a specific kind of antibody called IgE, and then that IgE reacts with the food and these particular types of tissue cells called mast cells, and they release these chemicals, and everybody who's listening, I'm sure, has heard of Benadryl, the histamine blocker, so everybody has some idea about histamine. Histamine is actually the chemical that when it gets released from those mast cells is responsible for the symptoms. Itchy, watery eyes, excess mucus production, um, skin eruptions like uh, hives, that type of thing, or swelling. Uh, everybody who's listening probably has heard of an anaphylactic reaction, which is like a massive type of allergic reaction that can be life threatening. So that's a very specific type of diet-induced inflammatory reaction. Uh Celiac disease is another. And in fact, I just want to touch a little bit about celiac disease because uh, a little more than a decade ago, celiac disease really didn't exist. Um, you couldn't go into every you know, supermarket like you do today and find a gluten-free section. You couldn't do that. And the reason you couldn't do that was because the vast majority of doctors, or you could say probably every doctor believed that celiac disease only affected one out of 15,000 people. Well, because of some breakthrough research that was done by primarily a doctor named Fasano, Anthony Fasano, um, He found out that celiac disease actually, I'm sorry, Alessio Fasano, not Anthony Fasano. Anthony Fasano was a tight end for the Miami Dolphins, I think, (laughs) recently. But Alessio Fasano. And Dr. Fasano found that celiac disease was actually more than 100 times greater prevalence than they actually had believed it to be. So his breakthrough of understanding the prevalence and how undiagnosed celiac disease uh, contributes to a really negative quality of life helped spur this gluten-free industry, which now accounts for about, I think it's roughly $10 billion a year or something like that worldwide. It's, it's, it's tremendous, the impact that it's had. And it's tremendous, the impact that it's provided to the quality of life that, of those that suffer celiac disease. It's really given them the ability to live a, a very normal life and a safe life symptom-free. Now, during his research, Dr. Fasano, he noticed that there was a group of of patients that he had that would respond to a gluten-free diet, but they did not have celiac disease. So, he researched it further and found, indeed, that gluten-containing foods were provoking various type of symptoms in this particular subgroup of patients that would result in headaches, or digestive problems, or brain fog. The patients wouldn't be able to think very clearly, or they couldn't remember very clearly. Or they would have hyperactivity. Or they would be super sleepy during the day, couldn't sleep at night. Or they would have great fatigue, energy problems all day long. So they had a wide range of different symptoms, and that when they took gluten-containing foods out of those patients' diets, they got better. So his research actually found that indeed there was a, an inflammatory reaction to these gluten-containing foods taking place in these patients, resulting in a wide variety of symptoms, and that it involved a branch of the immune system which had not been studied at all in relation to adverse food reactions. So for 60, 70 years, nobody had paid any attention at all to what's called the innate immune system and its role in food-induced inflammation or adverse food reactions. So that's essentially the category that we call food sensitivities. And he coined the term non-celiac gluten sensitivity. And gluten is just one of the things that can be a problem. Gluten has pretty much been demonized. You know, Uh, everybody looks there first whenever they have some type of unresolved health problem. And I got to tell you, it's really hard to eliminate gluten from your eating plan if you're not extremely careful and knowledgeable on the subject. But the other challenge is that when a person has a sensitivity to gluten, very often they have sensitivities to other things, as you inferred with your initial statement that there are no healthy foods. Mm-hmm. Listen, we've had so many patients that had clear cause and effect relationship between lettuce and their migraines that occurred 36, after, 36 hours after eating lettuce. They did it twice, they figured that out with our test, by the way, it was an MRT test that identified that. But that's the difficulty of food sensitivities is that it's a lot of different ways that it can affect a person. It's not just like just headaches. It's headaches, congestion, plus diarrhea or irritable bowel type symptoms. Or maybe they might even have GERD, you know, gastroesophageal reflux or heartburn. It seems like it doesn't matter what I eat. I've got all these symptoms all the time. And usually a person with food sensitivities has a number of things simultaneously. It's not just like one thing, though it can be. So because it's got this widespread – way of, of manifesting itself in the patient's life, you take that and you add to that the fact that reactions can be delayed, delayed by many hours. So in other words, it's not like I eat a food and it gives me a headache in 15 minutes or an hour like with allergy. See, allergy is a very quick reaction. You eat a food. And very consistently, within a half hour to an hour, you're sick. You get the same symptoms virtually every time. You might get an itchy tongue, itchy throat, swelling of your tongue, swelling of your throat. Some clear reaction takes place, and it's very consistent every time you eat that thing. And it's usually only one food that's a problem or two foods, rarely, with allergies. But in sensitivities, what happens is not only are... Does it manifest clinically in such a wide range? Not only can reactions be delayed by many hours, like if you eat the food this morning that causes your migraine that you experience in the evening, how are you going to think it was something that you ate in the morning? You know what I mean? You're not going to think that way because that's not how humans think. Humans think, what did I just do to cause this migraine just now? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Not realizing that it takes time for that whole situation and reaction to to develop inside the body. So the even if you can consider that it's food that you ate that caused your migraine, it's hard to pinpoint what it is because we eat so many different things, which is another aspect that's challenging about food sensitivities, is that you see food sensitivities arise due to what we call a breakdown of oral tolerance mechanisms. What that means is like you eat a food, it's supposed to digest into its Tiny components, you know, proteins get broken down into amino acids. Big fats get broken down and emulsified into their tiny lipid components that can be absorbed and utilized for energy and nutrition by all the cells in the body. But with food sensitivity, what happens is there's a breakdown in that process. It doesn't go according to how it's supposed to. And there's a lot of reasons why. But when it doesn't do that, it tends to also cause other reactions. It's not just one or two foods that you're reactive to like with allergy or with celiac disease. Celiac disease, it's just about the gluten. Allergy has eight foods that are about 85% of the allergic reactions are eight different foods. Food sensitivities, it's not that way. You're, you're usually, you lose tolerance to 15 to 20 things simultaneously. And some of those might be a much more prominent reaction, clear cut reaction when you eat them, but many of them are subtle. And the reason for that is because another feature of food sensitivity is the dose dependent nature of it, which means a small amount may not provoke any type of noticeable reaction in the body.
0: Yeah, I um, will quick, Ethan, I was going to ask you about that. Can you? Because a lot of times we think that we have to have some type of, of reaction. and uh, in my experience, when I was in the industry, I saw a lot of people who they were eating foods and they didn't have any reaction whatsoever. and um, also, I wanted you to talk a little bit about this as well is is that coming about because the immune system is is so suppressed that they they're not. Getting the symptoms because if they're eating the food over and over again, the immune system becomes so uh, suppressed that maybe that's not why they're getting the, the reaction? Well, the, the reaction
1: here's what the reaction means reaction means some type of inflammatory mediator release, it takes place. That's what reaction means. Mm-hmm. So your food isn't supposed to cause that type of reaction it's not supposed to. Food is supposed to be for our sustenance, our nourishment to help us, you know, deal with life, build uh, you know, the body, repair the body. That's what the purpose of food is. So, reaction, it's kind of like you have to look at the context of the person. So, the context of the person would mean like here's somebody who's super sick. They're very sick. They have terrible digestive problems. They have Terrible muscle and joint pain. They they have terrible brain fog. They get headaches all the time. They have uh, you know no energy and they are just a mess. You know that's like like one end of the spectrum. Then you have people who are extremely healthy, right? They can take a Big Mac and turn it into lean muscle they can it doesn't it seems like it doesn't matter what they eat they are just simply this the the poster child for health right that's the other extreme so and then you have a lot of people in between so within the context of those people who are sick where diet is playing a role in their in contributing to their illness the food sensitivity reaction may be the main reason Why that person is sick, or it may be a contributing factor. Mm -hmm. In other words, somebody might have like terrible digestive problems, and it turns out that they have a condition called small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, right? Now, that small intestinal bacterial overgrowth can be fertile ground for leaky gut. That actually can cause the development of food sensitivities. But this, the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, if you fix that, put it to you this way, if you don't fix the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, addressing the food sensitivities is only going to have partial relief to that patient. Do you understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So within your, your question, if I understand it correctly, is that if a person tests a reaction, it show, like it does a test and it shows a reaction, but when the person eats that food, they don't notice any negative effect by eating that food. Yes. Is that because their immune system is like dysfunctional in some way, mm-hmm. like suppressed or whatever? I would say my, my opinion is that the immune system essentially, if it's attacking the food, then it's going to be releasing these chemical mediators. When those mediators get released, they're going to have some physiologic effect. That effect could either be clinical, means you feel it, or it could be subclinical, which means something is happening but you do not feel it. So asthma is a perfect example of like a subclinical reaction. An asthmatic patient – and by the way, asthma could be – have a component that is food sensitivity related could have a component which is allergy related could have a part that is emotional an an emotional component to it as well it's a very complex disease so all of those things in people need who are who are asthmatics need to come together in order for the asthmatic patient to have an asthma attack so in the case of asthma An asthmatic patient undergoes many measurable physiologic changes to their breathing capacity before they're aware that there's any diminishment of their breathing capacity. In other words, you can measure it, but they don't feel it. So that's what you call subclinical. And subclinical is often related to what you're used to. So if you're used to being extremely healthy all the time, when you eat a, a food that causes some type of a reaction in your body, you're going to feel it because there's a big contrast, right? If you're always dealing with these lingering health problems, it's, you're not going to feel it. It's not going to have that one food that contributes a little bit of inflammatory response to your, to your physiology. You're probably not going to feel it like that. So, the immune system's working all the time like that. And it's kind of the, the better way to see it is like, suppose you have one of those, ex- like a, a chalkboard with an extremely complicated formula that's been written on that chalkboard. It's really hard to pick out one particular part of that equation and notice it unless you erase the rest of that equation. Then you can focus in on that one thing. I don't know if that's a good analogy. <laughs> yeah,
0: but, um, but. <laughs> God, I think when we spoke maybe two years ago, it was as if there was so much coming about about the uh, the gut, um, gut dysbiosis, leaky gut, whatever people want to call it. Now it's you know microbiome. It's all kind of other things now. But when someone has the condition of I'll just say leaky gut. Is it more likely that they're going to have these types of food sensitivities?
1: Uh, most definitely. If a patient has a leaky gut, that means they have increased permeability. Keep in mind, and everybody listening should understand that although your intestinal tract is inside your body cavity, it actually is the ex- still It's an external environment. There's a barrier that's intended to be there that prevents things which are in the, that gut from entering into your circulation. So if you have a leaky gut, if you have damage to those uh, tight junctions, they're called tight junctions in your small intestine. If those are damaged and they become more permeable, that means things which are typically not supposed to be in your circulation start finding its way into the circulation. And when that happens, now the immune system is confronted with another set of challenges, challenges, which is, Getting rid of that stuff. So it's either going to be fighting a lot more battles or it's going to be taking out the trash, so to speak, which is essentially what happens. And very often when a patient has a leaky gut, they're also, they don't have good um, eating habits. What does that mean, eating habits? So, this day and age, what do people eat? You know, they eat at restaurants, they eat a lot of fast food, they eat a lot of packaged food they um, they drink a lot of soda, they drink a lot of water with their meals. they drink cold drinks uh, they take medications which can damage the gut. They take medications which decrease digestive secretions. so what I said earlier was that you know the ideal is for us to digest and absorb our whatever we eat fully so If you're diluting your digestive juices with too much fluid at your meal and you don't chew your food properly, it will not break down properly. You will not digest it properly. If you have a leaky gut on top of that, then what happens is you start absorbing what are called macromolecules and it's those macromolecules which is one aspect that leads to the development of food sensitivity reactions. It's a very complicated picture how a food sensitivity and the actual inflammatory response, and it's not fully understood by the way. I'm not sitting here saying like we know everything because we don't. But that whole process is certainly an important part, the leaky gut, the poor digestion of the development of food sensitivities.
0: Are there certain types of diets that kind of lend themselves to food sensitivities? I know that you might have people out there who are into fitness and bodybuilding, and when I was into the whole fitness craze, and and I can't say I'm a bodybuilder because I'm 6'7", but <laughs> <laughs> I, and I don't have the physique of a bodybuilder. I have that typical long, lanky basketball physique. But, you know, I would always look in those magazines and try to eat what they ate. So uh, you're pretty much eating like the chicken breast, brown rice, and maybe chicken breast and vegetables or maybe salmon and vegetables. Um, I guess what I'm getting at is there a certain diet that lends itself to food sensitivities that may have the propensity to bring on food sensitivities since because you're eating the same thing over and over again. The only thing I could think of is just that typical bodybuilding diet because people tend to eat the same things over and over again. Yeah.
1: Well, I'll put it to you like this is that there are some foods which be, that are more commonly sensitive. Those include uh, wheat. That includes corn, soy, cow's milk, dairy. Those tend to be your biggies and and cane sugar as well. Those tend to be your five most commonly sensitive foods. And the reason It's thought to be that way is because those foods are consumed so frequently, right? But I would go one step further, and it's not the frequency of consumption. It's how well you're digesting because you can eat the same thing every day, and if your digestion is perfect, you will not develop food sensitivities. And so if you eat the same things every day and your digestion is not good, you will have a way increased chance of developing a food sensitivity. So the diet in and of itself is less a factor than uh, the digestive capacity and the eating habits of the particular individual. So if the bodybuilder who has very strong digestion is eating the same foods every day, unlikely that they're going to develop food sensitivities. That will be meaningful in their life. Um, the the bodybuilder who has all these issues. By the way, the, the bodybuilder who has like chronic IBS symptoms, migraine headaches, they tend not to be. You know, there, there's other signs, mm-hmm. and and that's a very interesting segue. Actually, I can tell you that you know, the the company that I work for, Oxford Biomedical Technologies, when we first were were developing our, our blood test MRT, we worked with the University of Miami Athletic Department, and. The initial studies that we did were um, assessing the ability of our test to be able to differentiate between healthy people and sick people, and we took uh, athletes. So. We took athletes, as I, as I mentioned before, you know, some people who are like the, the spitting image of health, they can take whatever you give them and turn it into fuel and, and lean muscle mass for their body. So there was a, a, a large group of athletes that we tested that fell into that category, totally healthy people. And then we took a group of, of athletes that had eczema, that had IBS, that had migraines, that had other types of health problems that were consistent with food sensitivities. And so those were the two groups and we blindly tested them for their reactions and the 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 ones that were symptomatic they had seven times more level higher levels of reactivity than the healthy group
0: Mm. so what you're saying is that and i wish i would have known this when i was in athletics (laughs) (laughs) Because I I myself have a gluten sensitivity Uh and I've been carrying it for years. And it wasn't until I got older in life, maybe, you know, my mid 20s, early 30s that I realized that, you know, I had a gluten sensitivity and it caused me to gain weight and pulled it out of my diet. But maybe... Man, it could have helped my performance in athletics yeah. if I would have pulled those foods out. And you see a lot of those articles. I remember I saw an article there was a Olympic swimmer and we're in the Olympics right now, yeah, who swore by just eliminating gluten. I think it was a, it was a she. It was mm-hmm. a woman. I can't remember her name right off, but she swore by eliminating gluten from her diet and ended up winning an event. This was the Olympics maybe what 4 years ago. The Olympics is done every 4 years, so I know exactly what you are are saying. Um talking about Conditions you mentioned IBS sometimes, and then you m- mentioned migraines. I'm going to throw autoimmune in there as well because autoimmune to me is exploding. I mean, every I talk to people all the time. I just had someone contact me through Facebook who has an autoimmune issue. And um, how important is it for someone to get this test done for these con- conditions that I that I mentioned?
1: Um. You see, here's the thing about an autoimmune condition is that um, the testing can be important, no, no question. Mm-hmm. But the test actually isn't measuring – is, what the test measures is it measures the immune cell reaction against a specific food. And an autoimmune condition is actually the, um, the immune system for some reason – is targeting its own body tissues. So that's autoimmunity. So it's not actually a reaction against any particular food. It's a reaction against its own body tissues. That's the difference between celiac disease and a food sensitivity in terms of the pathways. Um, so what, what happens is often is that the the main condition that a person has that's autoimmune, my recommendation would be to take away dairy Cow's milk dairy, one hundred percent, and take away gluten-containing grains, one hundred percent, and see how you do. Because there's the 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 most uh, research data shows that those two categories of foods can play a role in autoimmune conditions. So that's the first thing I would do. Then I would assess after about. Uh, 30 to 60 days, the clinical response. And if the clinical response is, is really like took care of it completely, then I would say, okay, enough work. No need to do the testing. No need to spend the money on the test. However, very seldom does a person just have an autoimmune condition by itself. Very often, there's comorbid problems. Like, for example, the person might have rheumatoid arthritis, which is an autoimmune disease, and they have digestive problems, which are not typically an autoimmune disease. So they would, if the removal of gluten-containing grains and, and cow's milk dairy relieve their arthritis 100% and their digestive, that very often, their digestive problems don't get better, although it might also because those you can have different kinds of reactions simultaneously to the same food. It's not just one thing. That's what people need to understand. Mm-hmm. But if if you've got an autoimmune condition, you take those two two groups of foods out of your diet, and you do better, but you're not perfect, then you really should consider the testing really important. And if you take those two groups of foods out of your diet and you don't do well, then you should definitely uh, try to do the testing. Because a lot of times, like not all rheumatoid arthritis is autoimmune. So um, it's just a limitation of the diagnostic capabilities of medicine today whether it's conventional medicine or whether it's uh, functional medicine or alternative medicine. We don't have diagnostic tests which can give us all the answers for everything. It just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. So you have to be smart about it. And the way I just approached it would be a pretty intelligent way to approach it. Avoid these two food groups. If I get 100% better, no need to do anything else. If I get better, but some stuff is still lingering, definitely do the test. If I don't get better at all, definitely do the test. Yeah, It may be not, it may not be autoimmune is, is my point. May, yeah.
0: yeah. 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 I just wanted to kind of clarify that. Let's kind of fast forward a little bit and talk about children because, uh, what has been your experience with, with testing children and when would you, maybe advise for children to get tested just simply because you know it seems to me like before we find out like what me might not agree with someone in their diet especially children we were more apt to jump on the side of medicating the the kids when it could be maybe you mentioned sugar cane sugar was one which a lot of kids love sugar I was one of those Yeah, uh, yeah and i mean who doesn't like sugar i mean yeah on. exactly but you know if you have a um a sensitivity to it then it could could affect you but when would you advise for parents to maybe look into to getting their, their children tested
1: uh, for food sensitivity testing um number one the food sensitivity testing is going to get to the cause of the problem but uh depends on the age of the child um you know, if it's a child where you can absolutely contr- can control their diet, then I don't always recommend testing. And those are for, for infants, you know, 12 months and under. I would say if you've got an unresolved health problem in your child and you've really eliminated all kinds of things from your diet and from their diet and you, you just don't know where to go, that's a good time to do the testing. And the doctors are scratching their head. You should all, by the way, you should always be working with open-minded pediatricians whenever it comes to your your kids. Open minded means if they if the if they're the first uh, thing that they try to do is medicate your child, um, and it's a condition where the medication simply masks symptoms, uh, I would say that that's not addressing the underlying cause. And you might want to go look for a, a pediatrician that is more interested in getting to the to the root of the problem, and, and having such a doctor is a blessing. So I would say then that, you know, the types of problems that we're talking about. I have headaches all the time. I have uh, congestion. I have headaches. I have a history of allergies, and I have digestive problems. That's a great candidate for testing. So the clinical indications are a good barometer for who should be tested regardless of their age. But the more the parent can control their diet, the easier it is to establish the cause and effect between what is uh, uh, perhaps provoking that response. And if you can do that without testing, I see for me testing, I don't say test everybody. It should be clear from this, you know, test based on, you know, its need and it's diagnostic value. So if you can figure it out without doing the testing, better. If you can't, then you do the testing. Kind of simple as that.
0: Yeah. Um, Before I get into mechanics, I wanted to kind of save the last of the interview for the mechanics of the testing and what you actually do and what needs to be done. But um, I want to just ask you about tannins, if you're familiar with that. And I didn't have my experience with this until after I did my own testing. And I had drank uh, wine you know, before, but when I started pulling the foods out that I was actually um, sensitive to, I just noticed that my immune system heightened so much, and I was able to be able to tell things that I had a sensitive sensitivity to that I didn't really notice before because once you start pulling the things that are kind of quote-unquote, bogging your immune system down, you start to notice things much more readily. But uh, when drinking wine, like just having a glass of wine, I remember, you know, getting up the next morning and my head just seemed like, I don't have a sinus problem, never had sinus issues in my life, but just drinking that wine and waking up the next morning and feeling like your head was exploding, I'm like, well, why is this happening? And um, I went in and started just uh, doing some research on my own and, and found out about tannins and then I uh, came across a conversation. I was talking to an individual as well about tannins, and she was having the same kind of effect, and tannins can be in in, in some foods, but specifically with wine. What's been your experience with, with tannins? Because I don't think uh, a lot of people really know about tannins, and people that I've talked to with regards to food sensitivity testing as well, they don't really know a lot about tannins tannins, uh, themselves. Um, I have limited knowledge
1: specifically about tannins uh, because, you see, it's kind of like this. When, When you are trying to figure out what parts of your diet are playing a role in your headaches, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, you mentioned wine mm-hmm. and you mentioned waking up the next day and having like a massive headache. Like what is going on here? So tannins are a potential part of the puzzle, mm-hmm. potential piece of the puzzle. So are uh, sulfites. So are all the different foods that we talked about. Yes. And it may have nothing to do with tannins. It may have nothing to do with sulfites. You see, like, for example, migraine headache, right? Migraine headache is an inflammatory disease of which the headache is one of the symptoms. So because it's an inflammatory disease, well, what's the source of the inflammation? It doesn't just happen by itself. There's some cause that's triggering this inflammatory response. And what's it responding to? So food is absolutely part of that equation, right? And more specifically, food sensitivity. So food sensitivity means that the, 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 the specific food is identified by your immune cells as being an enemy and it results in an attack against that food in some way that results in the release of these cytokines, leukotrines, prostaglandins that actually interact with the receptors in the head, which start the cascade of a migraine reaction. And it's absolutely for sure that way. But, if, but the lesser uh, types of headaches, it's not as clear. They don't know what the mechanisms are. But certainly, foods are part of the equation. As you can see on any major website, go to WebMD, go to Cleveland Clinic website, look into headaches and call potential triggers for headaches, and they'll, you'll definitely find foods as part of the picture. You'll also definitely find questions about sulfites, right? Or not questions, but sulfites are part of. It. They definitely can be part of it. But again, you're talking about. How does that sulfite cause a a headache in one person or a migraine in one person and not in another? Why is that? And migraines are an inflammatory disease. And what we've found is that the sulfite is actually causing a sensitivity reaction. It's not the – if you don't have that sensitivity reaction, you don't have the symptoms. So that's why the test is such a valuable thing, because we can test the chemicals that may be involved in this. And for me, tannins are another part of the potential thing. Is the tannin a toxin that causes the release of those mediators? I have not seen data which confirms that. So for me, it's like I put my faith in the testing. And in the method of building the diet based on the testing, that's what LEAP is. And in my experience and in the experience of hundreds of dietitians and other practitioners and tens of thousands of patients, it just is so effective at figuring out the cause and effect relationship between what you eat and how you feel. And it takes it and very seldom do we have, you know, not – you know patients that don't really resolve that well, especially with headaches and stuff like that, so my thinking is that the best thing to do the the surest way to figure it out is to do the testing yeah
0: now let's talk about the testing for the last couple of minutes here that we that I have you um, what is actually involved with the testing the testing is you have the the leap MRT test and you mentioned mediators but um, what's actually done with the testing? Kind of, kind of like a behind the scenes because I don't think a lot of people understand what's actually involved, but sure. if you can kind of walk sure. us through absolutely, step one to step four or five or how many steps are in between there.
1: Sure. So if somebody wants to get their, their, you know, to figure out if this test is uh, appropriate for them or not, they can actually visit our websites, www.nowleap.com, N-O-W-L-E-A-P.com. We have a a complimentary patient pre-screening form that's on our website. So you can fill out your health history. That's a confidential form. Um, then one of our uh, 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 representatives will, will discuss your situation with you. Uh, if it looks like, you know, food sensitivities can help you or food sensitivity testing can help you, then they would uh, explain the process. And essentially we would send you out a, a specimen mailer. Uh, you'd get your blood drawn. And then you'd send it into the lab. Uh, We would receive it. And then you see it's a whole blood test. And what we're looking at is how your immune system actually – it's like a functional test of your immune cells versus the food or chemical that we're testing. Test 150 different items individually. So 120 foods and roughly 30 food chemicals. And it identifies the degree and quantifies the degree of the reaction that takes place to that particular uh, item. And we then are able to assess what are the highly reactive items or the moderately reactive items or the non-reactive items. And from those non-reactive items, we then prepare an eating plan that that helps a patient build in a step-by-step fashion, Uh, an eating plan that gets the most dramatic decrease in inflammation that you can get with any blood test-based diet. So, MRT, the beauty of MRT is that it's what we call an endpoint test. So, an endpoint test means the the reason that the patient is suffering is due to the release of these, white, uh, these chemicals, these pro-inflammatory chemicals from white blood cells. So the histamine, the prostaglandins, the leukotrienes, the cytokines, those are inside white blood cells. When they release those from the cells, that's when the patient begins to suffer. And there's many reasons why those can be released. We don't care about the reasons why they can be released. We just care that the release takes place. So that's what we're quantifying. We're quantifying the degree of that inflammatory response. And the way we do that is by measuring very carefully with patented technology uh, the volumetric change that takes place in the cells after exposure and incubation with the items that we test. So we test 150 different things, gives those results to the patient, and turns that into how what are your best foods best foods means from the testing least reactive foods mm-hmm. and then what are your next best foods and we have a very specific way of developing uh, developing an eating plan but i highly recommend not doing this on your own i highly recommend working with a practitioner that is educated in this process We have a number of dietitians who are what we call certified LEAP therapists across the country. They are excellent at working with the patient's diet and getting the maximum clinical benefit from the testing. It's not just do the test and you'll get better. And it's not just do the test and stay away from my red or yellow foods that Mm -hmm. the test shows are reactive. It's how do I put together an eating plan because very often what happens when people go on an elimination diet is they eliminate the red or yellows but they don't eliminate all the other stuff that wasn't tested and they put chemicals in their diet. They don't change their eating plan enough and they don't know why they're not getting as better as they could. And having a trained therapist work with you is invaluable in that regard. Really, if you're going to do it, do it right. And that means working with really somebody who knows how this whole thing is meant to be done. You know, we developed this process in on thousands of patients it is not what you normally get when you just do a food sensitivity test that they treat it like an elimination diet okay stop eating the things you're, you're that our test shows you're allergic to or you're sensitive to there's more to it than that it's not saying you're not going to get better or get results but if you want to get the best results you work with a knowledgeable practitioner simple yeah. as that yeah.
0: And real quick, um, if you can just touch on this, because I know I came across this a lot of times when we've come up with foods that we are sensitive to. People think that you're never going to be able to eat those foods again. Touch on that real quick, and then that's the last question. Because oh, that's know, a good, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah, uh, it's not that way
1: with food allergies and with celiac disease. It very well could be a life sentence, but with food sensitivities, you're you're often dealing with a. Like, as I mentioned before about Dr. Fasano who found out that the innate immune system is reacting, well, the innate immune system often has short-term memory. What it means is that if a person stays away from the foods that they're reactive to for three months, roughly six months, between that time, often they can reintroduce that food back into their diet on a moderate basis. And not have any type of inflammatory reaction take place. So it's definitely not a life sentence when you have uh, food sensitivities, but managing it the right way is critical. Okay, great. Okay.
0: Yeah. Thank you for touching on that because I know a lot of people, when they say, I don't want to know what I can't eat, <laughs> <laughs> they think they can ever eat the foods again. But Ethan, right. it's, it's been a blast, <laughs> man. And thank okay. you for, for being on. I really appreciate it.
1: My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me, Darren. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Take care.